We're in for a treat this morning. Take your Bibles and open to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Uh, this morning we are doing, uh, we're going to look at this psalm and it is just a marvel. It's a, a wonderful psalm that God has built great complexity into. It's kind of like a precious jewel, like a diamond or sapphire or ruby or something where you you hold it up and, and it seems that whatever way you turn it, there is something new to see, something sparkly and bright and brilliant and beautiful. And that's really the way this psalm is. Some will mistakenly call Psalm 118 the center or the middle chapter of the Bible, uh, but it's not. And uh, I just looked on the, just out of curiosity, looked on the internet uh, yesterday, and sure enough, there's an awful lot of places that say Psalm 118 is the middle chapter of the Bible. It's not. It's Psalm 117, the one right before this. They also will say, a lot of them will say that the middle verse of the Bible is Psalm 118.8, but that's not true either. Uh, I won't go into it. It's a complex thing, depending on which translation you use and whatever, but they're not even close. In most Bibles, it's Psalm 103, but that's all another story. Just don't believe everything you read on the Internet. Be good stewards, good checker-outs of the Scripture. It is, however, sandwiched between... Psalm 118 is right between Psalm 117, which happens to be the shortest chapter of the Bible with only two verses. And on the other side, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible with 176 verses. We're looking at Psalm 118, and for those of you who are a little disappointed that you're not going to get a really short sermon on two verses of Psalm 117, you can take a little consolation that we're not going to get a really, 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 really long sermon on the 176 verses of Psalm 119. As I said, a lot of ways to look at this psalm. One of them is to notice that this psalm is a song of joyful worship. Running through this song is just a constant sense of joy. It was a song that was sung by the people of Israel often at feast days. As you know, God provided a number of feast days for the Israelites, and and, uh, this song was very frequently a part of those feast days. In the first 18 verses of this psalm, the imagery behind it is that of of worshipers who are on their way to Jerusalem, on their way to the temple to worship the Lord and to celebrate together. And as they do so, they are singing this psalm back and forth. Then in verse 19, they get to the city of Jerusalem and they, they go in through the gates. As the rest of the psalm progresses, they go in through the gates and, and to, they come to the altar and there to offer their sacrifice of worship to the Lord. And this psalm was designed for people to participate enthusiastically as worshipers together, for all the congregation to, to join in with this psalm. And so we're going to get, try to get just a little flavor of that and read together the first four verses and the last verse of this psalm. 
we're going to do this like kids at junior camp. All right. In other words, with enthusiasm, because that's the way it's designed to be done. So we're going to, you know, oh, give thanks to the Lord kind of thing. Right now, you guys are starting off. You good? You ready? You can do this. All right. I'm counting on you. All right. Here we go. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. That was just a practice. You ready? We're all warmed up now. I'm going to do this again. Here we go. Ready? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. That was awesome. I wish we would always talk and sing like that in church. That's awesome. Well, now a quiz. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> a quiz. Now, I want to know, that now that we've read this, these five verses, the first four, the last verse, what do you think is the main theme of this verse? The main theme of this psalm. What is it? His steadfast love endures forever. Wow, you guys are perceptive. You know, the first service didn't think you'd be able to pick that out, but you did. I'm proud of you. There it is. The main aim of this psalm is to help us to appreciate and to exalt and praise God for His steadfast love, which endures forever. That's, I think, one of the ways that the Israelites would celebrate this psalm. They would do it antiphonally. They would speak it. They would sing it. They enjoyed it. Well, a second way to look at this song, not only is it a song of joyful worship, it also is a song of a personal testimony. The author, the writer, the composer of this psalm is telling a story. We don't know who wrote this psalm. Some of the psalms tell us. Most of the psalms we know were written by David. Some were written by Asaph. Some were written by the others, the sons of Korah. One, Psalm 90, was written by Moses. Some of them are anonymous. This one is anonymous. What we know is it's someone who is king-like, someone who had been in a very dangerous place, Someone who had endured great trouble from his enemies, but God rescued him. God saved him. And the song tells of his rescue and gives praise and thanks to God for God's faithful and steadfast and saving love. A third way to look at this song is to realize it is a song perhaps about Israel. Some of the ancient rabbis in Israel said that this song is not really about one man, but it's, it's pictured as one man, but he's telling the story of the whole nation of Israel. The nation of Israel that was small and by many standards insignificant, and a nation that was oppressed and that was despised and looked down on by Gentile nations whom God saved and rescued and exalted. 
And that may be, and that's a good way to look at the psalm, and it may be part of how it was intended. A fourth way to look at this psalm is that it is perhaps a song of our own personal experience. You see, something happens as we sing it, as we read it, as we reflect upon it. And what happens is we begin to identify with the experiences of the songwriter. And we read of his troubles and his dangers and his, and his trials, we begin to identify with you know, the trials and the difficulties and the struggles in our own life. And when we read about how God has rescued him and delivered him, we are reminded of the times that God has delivered us and cared for us and rescued us in our own difficult times. That is exactly what led Martin Luther to declare that this was his favorite song. Martin Luther, one of the great leaders of the Reformation, and he wrote, he said, This is my psalm, my chosen psalm. I I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation and my life. But this psalm is nearest to my heart. And I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger from which not emperor nor kings nor sages nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. That's what this psalm meant to Martin Luther. Perhaps some of you, and maybe after today, and you spend more time reflecting on it, it may become your favorite as well. You may recall that many other reformers of Martin Luther's day, many of them were executed, martyred because of their faith. And so Martin Luther took verse 17 from this psalm and he had it put on a plaque that he hung in the wall of his study. Verse 17 says, I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. That verse gave him cheer and it gave him courage, assuring him that he was perfectly safe until his work on earth was done. And God called him home. So this psalm, perhaps like other psalms as well for you, becomes a song of our own when we spend some time in it. It tells our story. Well, those are some of the ways that we can look at this psalm. And there may be many others, but there's just one that I want to call our attention to this morning that I want to focus the rest of our time on this morning. And that is that as we read through it, what we will discover is that it relates to Messiah. It is a song about Messiah. Matter of fact, that is how many of the ancient Jewish rabbis viewed this psalm. Like, by the way, a number of the psalms, in them there is prophecy. They're speaking prophetically about the Messiah who will come. And indeed, what we discover is in the life of Jesus, these psalms are fulfilled. What, what they said a thousand years before Jesus comes to pass in His life. 
And again, there is so much. We're just scratch, going to scratch the surface this morning of this psalm. And so I want to, in this, the few moments we have, to focus just on three places where this psalm intersects with the life of Jesus in this week that we celebrate. What we often call Holy Week, the, the, day that, the, the week that starts on Palm Sunday and goes through the crucifixion of Christ and next Sunday His resurrection. This psalm intersects the life of Jesus in at least three places. We're going to look at three this morning. And I hope that it will amaze you and, and more than that, that it will excite you about the steadfast love and the goodness of God. So we're going to talk about the song of Messiah and how it intersects, first of all, with Palm Sunday. What we just read, not long ago, or, or uh, Brother Harley read for us earlier from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 11, where you know the story is Jesus is coming to Jerusalem on that Sunday and the crowds began to gather and they began to welcome Him as Messiah. As we read about that, do you remember as Jesus rode in, He was riding on a colt of the foal of a donkey? you remember what the crowds cried out to Jesus as He was coming in? It tells us there in Mark eleven nine, They were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Where did they get those words? Did they invent them on the spot? Did they pull them out of the air? Look at our psalm. I hope you have it open. Psalm 118. Look at verse 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, most of us don't speak Aramaic. I don't, and I don't know of any of you who do. But if you did, what you would know is that these words, save us, we pray, in Aramaic are the words, Hosanna. Oh, save us, we pray, is Hosanna in Aramaic. And so that was the language in Jesus' day of the common Jewish people. It was Aramaic. So what they say is, and as they go on, save us, we pray, O Lord, Hosanna. And down in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got those words right out of this psalm. What's significant about that, again, is that most of the people then knew that the rabbis viewed this psalm as one that related to Messiah. And so what the people are putting together, they have seen Jesus over the last three years and they have, they have begun to realize He is the Messiah. And so they're taking a psalm that relates to Messiah and they're taking the words from there and they're responding with cries to Messiah, Hosanna! Save us now! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They're affirming, You are the Messiah. Rescue us. Save us. That's why the verse before this, the worshipers call out this. They say, 
This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, as Christians today in the 21st century, we love, we love this verse. We put it on plaques. We put it on bumper stickers. We get it on little, you know, it's on note cards. We get, this is the day the Lord has made. And what we do, we've kind of turned it into a Christian version of the phrase carpe diem. You know, carpe diem, seize the day. It's, this is the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. And that's not a bad thing to do because every day is a gift from God, but that's not the point of that verse. That verse is connected with save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's connected to the coming of Messiah. And we rejoice and celebrate and we seize this day to say we're going to rejoice in it because the Messiah has come. That's what the crowds were doing on Palm Sunday. That was the big celebration. Secondly, this psalm intersects with the life of Jesus two days later on Tuesday. On Tuesday, Jesus was in the temple. You may recall that day as He was there and He's speaking to the crowds of people there in the courtyards of the temple. And there are the religious leaders there. And the religious leaders begin to question Jesus, to ask Him things, and their desire is to perhaps trip Him up, get Him to say something wrong or foolish or heretical, get Him to embarrass Himself. But they fail on all accounts. They can't get him to embarrass himself or say something heretical or wrong. And during that encounter, Jesus turns to the crowd and he tells a couple of parables. And one of the parables is talking about the owner of a vineyard and this Vine Growers Association that basically double crosses the owner and they kill his servants and eventually they kill his son. And what Jesus is doing, and it's the, the religious leaders realize he's talking about them and he exposes their desire. Even now they are working hard to come up with a way to kill him. And when Jesus finishes with the parable, He asks them a question. The question He asks is this, Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. They go, wow. He really nailed them then. What is he saying? What does it mean? What's the point? The cornerstone was the primary stone of a building, the corner foundation stone, which set the, the pattern and the, the plum and have a square for the building. It can also be translated capstone, the, the key stone at the top of an arch. They're keystones in a building can be translated either way. But what is the stone and what's being built? What's Jesus' point? It's a great question. Let's go to the psalm. 
Because the answer is here. Psalm 118. Again, pick it up at verse, go back up to verse 19. Jesus, by the way, we'll just look. He's quoting from this psalm. It's in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But to get the answer of what he means by it, let's go back to verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Remember, the, the picture here, the imagery, is worshipers coming. And now they have come to, to the temple of God. And really, the scene here is more than just the temple in Jerusalem. Because they say, open the gates so that we can come in to give thanks to the Lord into the presence of God. Open the gates. And the cry from the wall is, This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous may enter. And when we think about it, we realize there's a problem here. This is the gate of the Lord and only the righteous can get in. And we want to get in because we want to be with the Lord. But only the righteous can get in. And who among us is righteous? Who of you has never sinned? The Bible says none. None of you have never sinned. A double negative, meaning all of us have sinned. Fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We've got a predicament. We've got a problem. The psalm continues, though. Look at the next verse, verse 21. There's some good news here. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Who has answered? We come a couple of verses later. It's the Lord who's done this. The Lord answers and opens the gate so that we can come in. But how have we been suddenly become righteous where we can go in to the Lord? Well, the next verse, verse 22. How did this happen? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Whatever this stone is, it's, it's been rejected But while it was rejected, it became the cornerstone. The cornerstone that accomplished our salvation so that we can be with God. Now, for us, we've gotten the answer sheet. (laughs) We know the answer to this. Oh, I know. Sunday school answered. It's Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer. And you're right. That's the point. Jesus. But this psalm is looking forward to this a thousand years in the future. And as Jesus says to these leaders, have you not read? He's wanting them to go back and start thinking this through. Because they're just about to put Him to death. They rejected Him. And He's going to become the cornerstone of salvation through that death. This is the Lord's doing. God has known this all along. Jesus is saying, this stone is me. I'm Him. This is why I came. And God put this in here. It's marvelous to us. God became one of us so that He could die for us, for our sin, so that we can be with Him. Wow, that's 
marvelous. That's astounding truth. So now the words of joy that follow those verses make even more sense. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And so the people cry out, save us. Save us now. Save us, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Our desire is to be with You. Give us success in that. Save us. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless You from the house of the Lord. Bless You. You've brought us to the inside. Now on the inside we say, bless You for saving us. You see, that's the picture. The whole salvation plan of God is laid out here. Now quickly, two days later, this psalm intersects the life of Jesus one more time in this week. It's now two days later. It's Thursday. Thursday evening. Thursday evening, you probably know, Jesus celebrates the Passover with His disciples. Gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. You can read about it in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. And most of you know that the Passover meal is a memorial, it's a remembrance going back to the the deliverance of the nation of Israel when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to the land of promise. That's what the, the, the Passover memorializes and remembers. And, but it also pictures God's deliverance of His children out of slavery of sin and brings them into freedom. In him and relationship with God. History informs us that when the Jews observed the Passover, that among the many traditions that were a part of the Passover meal, the Passover gathering, as the family or, or sometimes extended family or friends gather that besides the meal, they would say certain things, read certain things, do certain things. And one of the things they did was they would always sing some songs. Two before the meal and four afterwards. What songs would they sing? Six psalms. Six psalms that are called, that they called the Egyptian Hallel. Hallel means praise. It was praised because they were rescued or delivered from Egypt. Which psalms were they? Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, 118. The psalm before us, the last of those six songs. Two before the meal, four after the meal. And so when Matthew 26 verse 30 when Mark chapter 14, verse 26 says that after they finished singing a hymn, they left the upper room. And then we know that what happened, they walked through the streets of Jerusalem down across the Kidron Valley, up to the, across the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed until the soldiers came and arrested him and took him 
the last song that Jesus sang was almost certainly this psalm, Psalm 118. When we read this, brothers and sisters, we are reading words that Jesus sang just hours before He was crucified. That ought to make us go, whoa, what does this say? The last song. Jesus knew He was headed for the cross. He had made that clear over the months and weeks before. And He knew verse 27 of this psalm which says, look at verse 27, The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine on us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Jesus knew that this Passover wasn't just any Passover. While other lambs were being taken to the altar, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going to be the sacrifice this Passover. Jesus knew He was going to be the sacrifice here that this psalm celebrates. The psalm celebrates the sacrifice because that's what opened the gates for our salvation. But Jesus knows very well the cost of this. And in the next hours, Jesus will endure the worst abuse and torture that humans can heap upon a man. But far greater than that, the full and the fierce wrath of God, the holy wrath of the Father will be poured out upon our sin as Jesus bears it in our place. Jesus, solely out of His love for us, is going to step into the greatest suffering the universe will ever see. And then the words from the beginning of this psalm, in the first half of this psalm, where it talks about the suffering of a songwriter, those words will become Jesus' words. His personal testimony, as it were. He suffers for us. That night as Jesus sang these words, I believe that they were put there for Him. To be of encouragement to Him to trust and to cling to the Father. To see Him through the hours ahead. Hours that were unthinkable and to us unknowable. We cannot know what He went through. Verse 5, he cries out, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. Verse 6 of this psalm, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 10, All the nations surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. Verse 12, They surrounded me like bees. Verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. Verse 14, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 18, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. By the way, that isn't saying that Jesus won't die, because He will. 
what it's saying is his death won't be the end of the story. The Lord won't abandon him to death. See, not only is his death here, his resurrection is here. As he says in verse 17, I will not die, but I will live. He will die, but he won't. How do you do that? He's raised from the dead. It's all here. Isn't this marvelous? So not only does it touch on Palm Sunday and Tuesday and Thursday, it even touches just briefly a little hint of Sunday. Resurrection. Well, it's a marvelous psalm, isn't it? I hope that's encouraged you to go back and read it some more. Dig in a little bit. But let me conclude with another place that this psalm shows up. Not where it intersects this last week of Jesus, but rather a little while later. In the Scripture, it's in the book of Acts in chapter 4. It's a few months after Jesus' resurrection. Peter and John have been arrested and hauled before the Sanhedrin, the same group of religious leaders who had sentenced Jesus and who had sent Him to the Romans to execute Him because they didn't have the authority to execute Before these same leaders, Peter and John are now on trial because they've been out preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And because while they were doing that, they healed a man who had been lame since his birth, crippled since birth, and they healed him. And they were drugged before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrins, who said, you can't be doing this. By what authority do you say these things and, and... You've you got to shut up. Be quiet. Stop doing this. Peter answered. Here's his answer to their charges. Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, that's speaking of Jesus, is, here's our verse, the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the capstone, the cornerstone. See, by the way, Peter was there on Tuesday when Jesus quoted this same verse to the religious leaders who included many of these who they were standing before this day. Peter is saying, hey guys, do you remember this verse? Did you hear it somewhere before? Jesus quoted it. And he's saying, in essence, now he's been raised from the dead. God has raised him and you know it to be true. And this man stands here now healed through the name of Jesus. And All of that proves Jesus' point. He was and is the stone that was rejected by the builders, you, who has become the cornerstone now of our salvation. And he says, by the way, 
He doesn't say it, but it's implied here. God has had this planned all along from the beginning. And He put it all right there in this psalm. And He's just played it out right in front of our very eyes. You see, in those very few words, Peter is saying, do you see it? Do you see it? And he moves right to the punchline, to the logical conclusion. The next verse there in Acts 4, the next verse is this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The religious leaders were astonished. They they had no answer. They didn't know what to do. They had no rebuttal. They could not deny the truth before them. But sadly, because of their pride and their sin, they would not receive the grace that God even then was offering to them through Jesus. They wouldn't receive it. Dear friends, to anyone who trusts in Jesus, He will become a precious treasure because He provides salvation to all who will believe in Him. Peter, writing in his first letter, quotes from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who writes and says, See, he's quoting Isaiah speaking for God. See, I lay in Zion, that's in Jerusalem, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But for those who reject Jesus, like these leaders, Jesus becomes, as Peter says, goes on to say, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Peter is saying that for those who will not believe, who will not receive Jesus, instead of being the cornerstone of their salvation, instead of being their rescue, He becomes their doom. Because the Bible says that one day every knee will bow before Jesus and everyone will stand before Jesus either as their Savior or they will face Him as their judge. So this morning, if you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Jesus as your Savior, that's why Jesus came. It's what He invites you to do. It's what I urge you to do, to trust Him this morning. Whether you're watching at home, whether you're downstairs, whether you're here in this room, you can receive Him right where you are. You simply say to God, I realize I'm a sinner. I stand condemned before you. But you loved us so much. You sent Jesus. God became man to die in my place for my sin. I believe Him. I believe you. God, I receive Jesus. I trust Him as my Savior. You know, the Bible says the one who comes to Him He will not turn away. I don't care how bad you've been, how much you've done. The Bible says if you come to Him, 
and faith, trust in Jesus, you will be saved. For all of the rest of us, all of us this week, let's take time to ponder the cross. As we move towards Friday, the day where we celebrate the crucifixion, because nowhere is the steadfast love of the Lord Nowhere is the goodness of our God in put on such brilliant, such bold, such beautiful, such marvelous display as at the cross of Calvary where Jesus died for us. And so then I hope as we think of those things that often this week we will join in with the psalmist and we will say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Father, thank You for Your steadfast love. Love that is beyond our comprehension that You, the Holy God, the Creator of all would love us, frail, rebellious, sinful creatures. You'd love us so much that You entered into Your creation, became one of us to die for us, for our sin. It's astounding. Such amazing love. Lord, may we begin to grasp that a little more this week. And therein may we find first salvation that not a one would hear these words and turn away from You. Second, that we would discover Your love and we would embrace it. We would cling to it. That we would find courage and comfort because whatever our situations, whatever we are going through, You are the God who loves us and You are working with us and for us as Your children. We can know that nothing separates us from Your love through Jesus. So Father, may that revolutionize us. Change how we look at life and change how we live all the days of our life until you call us home or until Jesus returns. These things we ask in His name and for His glory.